think it's a development that warrants more careful thinking as opposed to the references to the deep state. Are they resisting actions they believe are outside the scope of the agency's statutory or constitutional mandate? Or are they resisting policy changes that are within that scope? And I think you'll see kind of on that kind of axis, the propriety of bureaucratic resistance will really kind of depend. Welcome to Briefly, a presentation of the University of Chicago Law Review. This is Jeremy Rosansky, an online editor with the Law Review. And our subject today is bureaucratic resistance. Bureaucratic resistance occurs when civil servants disobey elected officials and political appointees. Some kind of bureaucratic shirking is an inevitability in modern government. But bureaucratic resistance has been uniquely public during the first two years of the Trump administration. I'm excited to be joined today by Jennifer No, a professor of law at the University of Chicago, and Chris Walker, a professor of law at The Ohio State University. What are we talking about when we talk about bureaucratic resistance? seems like there are a lot of different behaviors that we lump under this one category. Yeah, I think it's important to be very precise about what we're talking about. So I think that's a great question. So maybe it's useful just to talk about some dimensions along which bureaucrats defined as civil servants can resist the directives of political appointees and other superior members of the executive branch. For example, bureaucratic resistance could be either overt or it could be covert. In addition to that, it could also be conscientious, by which we might mean intended to bring about some political reform. It's a sincere act of protest. Or by contrast, it could also be self-serving. That is to say, to try and affect the policy preferences of a civil servant. So there's many other dimensions that we could talk about, but just as an introductory matter, you know, I think it's useful just to think of it as civil servants that are attempting to push back on the directives or the commands or the policy preferences of the political appointees above them. And Professor Walker, what do you think of that definition? Yeah, I think that works. I mean, as Professor Noah was saying, it can take on different forms. We're talking about using lawful channels of expressing dissent and disagreement, that's one form. If we're talking about using unlawful means, obviously that's another. (laughs) And then on top of that, it also depends on what they're resisting. So let's talk about some of these sort of overt things we've seen during the Trump administration. So we've seen insubordinate tweeting from those who claim to be part of staffers with the EPA. But at the same time, we've also seen this story about a White House staffer taking papers off the president's desk to prevent a particular trade policy coming through. So the anonymous op-ed, as you know, was written supposedly by a political appointee that is an appointee of Trump. And I think I wouldn't categorize that as bureaucratic resistance, as I'm understanding it, at least in terms of the civil servants themselves. But I think it's very useful to separate out, again, these career staff who have, generally speaking, tenure protections. They have long careers or indefinite service in the government as compared to political appointees who, on average, are there about two years or so. That's one dimension. And the other dimension to break out, because you mentioned the Twitter accounts, is the Twitter accounts, although their veracity is uncertain, they are anonymous. That is to say, they pretend to be on behalf of civil servants, sort of kind of in a faceless way. I think it's useful to distinguish that from This other phenomena that I think we're seeing in the Trump administration of civil servants that are non-anonymously also protesting and resisting the government. So just a few examples on that front. 
I see in the media that often career civil servants in their own name and in their official capacity will express dissent or resistance to many of the policies of the Trump administration. Similarly, when there are political appointees that seem diametrically opposed to the agency's mission, take, for example, former EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, they are protesting during the workday and their pictures are in you know, the newspapers. And that's also non-anonymous, I think, in a way that's different and useful to distinguish. Because I also, by the way, lump into the anonymous behavior all the leaking that we've seen. The leaking that clearly comes from the career staff, but again, it's done in anonymous form. And normatively speaking, I think it's useful to kind of think about the extent to which we think both of those forms are appropriate or not. I guess with the Twitter accounts, I didn't follow them too closely, but they kind of struck me as just being like symbols of resistance with lots of snark, but not really like leaking. I do view leaking, even if it's anonymous, as different than kind of these you know, anonymous, faceless Twitter accounts that may or may not might, may or may not actually be <laughs> from agency, you know, career officials. Uh, it's, it, it is an interesting kind of wrinkle there. Yeah, no, I agree. I, th- I think that, that, that they are different. And I think the normative picture that we might have in our heads as we're talking about this difference is maybe some, you know, kind of First Amendment debate inflected view of Um, you know, democratic debate. So for example, you know, if we think that there is a role for civil servants who have special access to particular kinds of information that the public wouldn't have, um, you know, maybe we're, you know, more okay with certain forms of leaking. And, you know, we're less, um, you know, we're less okay with, with these Twitter accounts that, as you say, Chris, and I think you're right, they just take on this snarky tone and have almost more of an, an entertainment value than, than an informative one. Oh, it's funny because I, I was kind of maybe thinking the other way around, <laughs> or better said, I mean, I could imagine if career officials wanted to anonymously or not anonymously on their own time, on their own dime, you know, outside of work, uh, express opposition to a particular policy, um, that would be different than using inside information uh, to thwart the policy, information they only have because of their job. I don't know. I, I mean, I view, I, I, that was kind of maybe what I was trying to get at more is that. Um, you can imagine career folks at agencies should, or, or maybe it is more proper for them to be able to kind of mobilize outside of the workforce just to express their disagreement. Yeah, I mean, I think insofar as we're talking about stuff sort of outside of the workday, by, by which I think you mean to imply something done by like private citizens, like in their private capacity, right? And we're talking about kind of Hatch Act related sort of issues here. Um, I don't know. If I agree that the Twitter accounts themselves um, exemplify that because they are, you know, it's not that, you know, they're using their own private handles, right, to, to, to express this dissent, which I agree is totally a different thing. But I, I, I think that, you know, as long as you're using the handle of the agency uh, that, you know, it's a parody of the, of the handle, right? It's often, you know, NOAA resistance, for example. Um, I don't know. I think that that pretends to at least they're, they're trying to express more of an official position. And, you know, regardless of whether they tweet at 10 a.m. or 6 p.m., you know, I, 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 I don't think that that's the purely private kind of expressive behavior that, that we think is protected by, by the Hatch Act. So we talked about some overt ways in which this happens. We talked about a couple covert ways, particularly leaking. Are there other covert actions that are counted underneath the umbrella of bureaucratic resistance? Absolutely. So I think one of the most common is something that is referred to by different names, but they include things like working to rule, 
Jessica Bowman Posen and David Posen also refer to it as uncivil obedience. And I think all these ideas are trying to capture the phenomena whereby civil servants obey exactly what the directive is, but do so in a begrudging way that can sometimes slow down the implementation of what's happening or will comply in a very technical way, but they won't advocate for a policy. One example of this is during the Reagan administration when the U.S. Department of Agriculture was attempting to categorize ketchup as a, a vegetable. You know, there were many career civil servants that report going to meetings and, you know, defending that policy choice, but not vigorously advocating for it. And that, I think, is a covert way of resisting. I was going to jump in. So, and I think maybe that's kind of teasing out like a third category, right? Of like, I would think lawful resistance. When I usually think about that, that's like you're saying, dissent channels, whistleblower statutes. Unlawful resistance would be something where you're actually violating the law. But this is kind of the middle category. And this is also my mind kind of taking the sick days, you know, when projects need to get done. I mean, like, it's not unlawful to do that, right? But you're kind of slowing things down. This might also include examples you see at the Justice Department recently of not signing briefs. Maybe it doesn't, but maybe this is, right? This idea of signaling to courts that none of the career folks agree with this and so no one's signing the brief. That is another way of kind of undercutting the administration's position. I think this last example, by the way, this of not signing briefs, I actually think that that's different as well. I think of that as another category that philosophers refer to as conscientious objection, where you're not kind of resisting the implementation or progress of some executive directive so much as you are trying to preserve your personal integrity and therefore saying, I can't participate in this. Now, it's true, of course, that by not participating in some ways, you are not contributing to the effort. But, you know, assuming that somebody else is taking your place, that strikes me as an interestingly different form of dissent as well. Is there a law of the bureaucracy or a law governing bureaucratic resistance? Yeah. So the most relevant laws and statutes in the book are clearly the whistleblower acts. So there's the Whistleblower Protection Act that itself amended the Civil Service Reform Act. And to simplify, what this body of laws does is it has an explicit provision in it that expressly states that civil servants, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but it essentially says, shall not violate illegal order uh, regulation or directive, something to that effect. And there's a whole institutional apparatus that then is set up to try and vindicate that protection. So again, to simplify what whistleblowers can do, that is somebody who thinks that they've been directed to do something legal, what they are encouraged to do is to bring that claim to something called the Office of Special Counsel. And the Office of Special Counsel can then investigate those claims. And then there are a number of different channels that can happen from there. If the Office of Special Counsel declines to take the claim, then you can often, I believe, take your claim right to the Merit Systems Protection Board. Or if the Office of Special Counsel does decide to investigate the claim, I believe the Office of Special Counsel can then do so and then report back on their findings to the agency management. And your identity you know, should usually be kept anonymous during that investigation. And then from there, any determination of the Merit System Protection Board, because they have to make, of course, a determination whether indeed you, know, you were asked to be doing something illegal. And I believe the standard, by the way, there is that the employee has to have something to the effect of a reasonable belief. It's a subjective belief in good faith that the action was illegal. And from there, the ruling can be appealed to the federal circuit. And then just recently, Congress has amended the statute to actually allow those appeals to go to any circuit 
which is a huge change because there's been a lot of criticisms of the federal circuit and sort of being anti-whistleblower in orientation. Now all of that can go to the different circuits. So it's going to be really interesting to see kind of what that does to the, the dynamics. Are there rules of professional conduct for civil servants? So this brings out another interesting dimension, an important one when we're talking about bureaucratic resistance. That is the differences between um, the role of particular civil servants. So, and I'm, in particular, I'm thinking government lawyers versus government scientists versus, say, policy analysts. And, you know, each of these different groups have their own sets of professional norms. So let's take lawyers. Um, you know, they are, um, <clears throat> as you know, they have to abide by a code of ethics. And um, essentially, the, the code of ethics first states, first, I should just first say, there's a huge debate in an active one about um, who the client is of a government lawyer, right? Is it the public, right? Is it your agency head? Is it the president? Um, but uh, one reading of the, the relevant code provisions, I think, first says that, that you, you know, you, your, your duty is to um, the agency head, but if you believe the agency head is doing something illegal, you as a lawyer then have a duty to raise it to higher level officials, which I think is, is, is interesting because that's not, um, it's not, it's basically suggesting that indeed your, your only duty is not to the agency head, that it is to the law, the supremacy of the law, which, which, um, uh, privileges, uh, you know, rule of law values over sort of institutional managerial efficiency. Um, and um, from there, there's even a provision that suggests that you could even, you know, take it public, you know, depending on the egregiousness of the, of the illegality. Um, briefly on scientists, um, the Obama administration um, sort of guidelines on scientific integrity, um, to my knowledge, have not yet been in, uh, revoked by the Trump administration, which is surprising uh, to me, um, because they are fairly robust. And um, each agency has different implementations of the codes of scientific integrity. That is like, what are the duties of government scientists? And um, just to take one example, the EPA's code um, seems to suggest that um, scientists have a duty to bring to keep all their scientific disagreements within the agency, which you wouldn't necessarily expect given the va high value placed on peer review. Um, at the same time, the 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 code of these codes of scientific integrity do indeed say that the review should be peer reviewed. So, in other words, excuse me, the research should be peer reviewed. Um, so, you know, taken together, one way to interpret them is that um, scientists. Um, you know, should be advocating peer review, but then um, when they believe that the um, agency head, um, the management is doing something that is contrary to scientific ethics, that, you know, they have a duty to sound all the alarm bells um, within the agency. And that commitment, by the way, is bolstered by um, an office of science, uh, basically a scientific integrity official that's been appointed in each agency. And I've been told, for example, that, again, surprisingly, that that officer can um actually instill in the Trump administration can can play a very strong role. So for example, the EPA, I was told um, that um, the current office officer for scientific integrity for, you know, that, that is kind of the um, exemplification of these values used to be um, at the Union of Concerned Scientists, which, you know, is a is an organization that um, is very independent in terms of um, you know, uh, implementing and defending scientific values. So this is just all to say that, um, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised, but there is this whole apparatus in place to um, try and enforce the code of scientific ethics and the values associated with it.
So let's bring this conversation kind of back to where we were. What what do we think the boundaries should be now that we've discussed kind of what the legal apparatus are? Um, are there are there things that have happened during the Trump administration, forms of resistance that you two think should be out of bounds? Well, I mean, I have a I have a category that I think is is to me sort of out of bounds, and I should just start by saying that. Um, uh, as Chris knows, I go back and forth in, in in my head about this this whole topic in a normative matter because I think it's a really really difficult one. So I just want to say this to say, you know, I could change my mind on a lot of this, you know, and thinking about it more in a couple months, and I, I want to revisit the topic. But um, one category that I see is is just clearly out of bounds is um, what you might call sort of policy based resistance. That is to say, when you know you you have a career civil servant that just disagrees with the policy of the incoming administration. Um, now. Obviously, there is um, a, a huge debate, and it's very difficult to separate the lines between policy and law, right? There are there's lots of jurisprudential writing about, you know, so many people think think of, you know, for example, critical legal studies. They think law is policy. Um, pragmatists also think law is policy. But um, setting those nuances aside, um, you know, if we can identify a set of resistance where, you know, simply let's take, you know, somebody at, you know, EPA because it's such a such a um, uh, an agency that's in the news, you know, I think that we have seen some examples where, you know, some people at the EPA just really disagree with um, some of the administration's um, policies um, under the Clean Air Act. And, you know, to the extent that we've seen that kind of resistance, I I, th I think that's normatively out of bounds. I don't think that it is the role of career civil servants to um, uh, certainly openly resist. Now again, this is why we come back to the definition because I do think that there's a role if if we if we define resistance very broadly simply to mean to, you know to, to push back in internal meetings and to express you know opposing views those are fine right but anything that goes beyond that once the decision has been made I think the civil servants should fall in line you know as a normative matter um, you know I have come out to thinking that normatively speaking that we should only like bureaucratic resistance when um, it is resistance against clearly illegal behavior. And I fully recognize that there is a huge debate and difficulties about defining what is clear and what is not. The one thing worth noting in thinking about the standard of clear illegality is that in the military context, um, lower level members of the military um, actually have a duty to disobey military orders that are patently illegal, clearly illegal. And you could have one of two reactions to that observation, right? One is to say, well, the military is materially different than the civil servants and the, the bureaucracy. And um, in particular, right, the military, it's much more important to fall into line. And um, so therefore, in, um, you know, in the bureaucracy, where it's less important, that is, the stakes aren't as life and death as they are in the military context, then maybe we should relax the clear illegality standard. And I think that's what Chris was potentially alluding to. Um, that could be one reaction. Um, the other reaction is potentially to say, like, look, actually, um, the clear illegality standard is the right standard um, because the, the military itself um, has elements of bureaucratic ordering, most um, obviously the importance of hierarchy. And um, maybe instead, the um, 
debate should be about what we mean by clear illegality. Yeah, I mean, I'm not actually sure that's where I would draw the line. Yeah, so 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 where would you draw the line? I I I I think if the career folks feel it's unlawful, that's probably where I would draw the line. Not if it's clearly unlawful. If they just have a reasonable belief that it's that it's un- oh, I'm sorry, Chris. I mean, if they have a reasonable belief, you mean that it's unlawful? Yeah, I don't know. I'm 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 I'm, I'm sorry. I haven't thought thought it entirely through, but the idea of like adding an additional layer of you can only resist through, again, through unlawful means, right? Not through just the normal channels. If you think it's like clearly unlawful, um, or better said, if it's like objectively clearly unlawful, because now we're in qualified immunity land, right? As opposed to like subjectively uh, unlawful. On this question of clearly illegal. So is that is that for all bureaucratic resistance or just the overt actions of uh, acts of bureaucratic resistance, the kind of um, d- does the, does the EPA still have to process the directives with appropriate vigor um, uh, when they're not clearly illegal or, or, or can there be some, can they kind of gum up the works? Is that, is that permissible? So my instinct is to say um, it's not permissible. That is to say that, you know, both, covert and overt um, resistance is only appropriate for, you know, when there is a clearly illegal directive. Um, That said, I just want to observe that, you know, for covert resistance, um, you know, I haven't thought as much about that category as I have about the overt, but I, I, you know, what I find so hard about the covert category is, you know, it's assumed some kind of baseline of, as you said, appropriately vigorous sort of sort of advocacy. And, you know, in a world of resource constraints, you know, you know, civil servants are going to have to be making choices all the time about how to allocate their resources. So it's not the case, in other words, that every policy can be researched and implemented with maximum vigorousness and, you know, um, with as much time as possible. So, you know, maybe one implication of that is that, you know, some forms of quote unquote resistance are maybe inevitable in a world of resource constraints and hierarchy and, you know, not to mention imperfect information, right? That is to say, often civil servants don't know what their political superiors want them to find. They don't know what the preferences of their their superiors are. And, you know, if you define it really, this phenomenon really broadly, you know, when they, um, you know, in this world of imperfect information, if they come out to some conclusion that's against what their superiors would have wanted, well, hey, that's a form of bureaucratic resistance. And, you know, then, you know, it is really inevitable. And it's just a part of the administrative state, and we have to live with it. Do you think bureaucratic resistance has a consistent ideological valence? Um, Are career bureaucrats always going to be more 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 liberal, they, they um, uh, with the kind of maybe exception of uh, law enforcement career, career bureaucrats, um, and it, it, d- does that change in any way how we think about this? That's a great question, an important one. And, and like political scientists, like David Lewis, has spent a long time trying to figure out which agencies are blue and which ones are red, right? Uh, and so, I mean, I think I think you see this in any change in a presidential administration. Um, but it, it will, it, I think it will largely track, uh, you know, the, the mission orientation of the agency, right? And so not surprisingly, you'll see stuff on the immigration front in the Obama administration, uh, and you'll see resistance on the environmental front in the Trump administration. And that probably shouldn't surprise you too much. But I do think there's kind of an underlying 
issue here is that probably you have more bureaucratic resistance in the Republican administration, right? <laughs> Just because I think more agencies tend to be more blue, at least if the political scientists are right. Um, and, and as a contrast to that, which is something we haven't talked about at all, which could be a whole separate podcast, is just this idea of, well, what is the political appointee response? And, and we've, we've seen that, right? Um, we've seen the Trump administration respond by trying to challenge the removal protections that you that may that may may be in place right i mean we've seen that at the alj level um i think you could see that if you connect the dots from um jennifer mascot's terrific work that this is going to go much more deeply cut much more deeply into the administrative state um you've seen executive orders that are trying to cut back on the strength of unions uh of you know agency bureaucrat unions uh, and, and I think these are responses. I mean, some of them might just be political responses to kind of the deep state rhetoric, but I think some of them are actually real responses to some of the bureaucratic exist- resistance that at least some politicals are feeling on the ground. And just to add to all of that, um, in addition to um, what Chris has already rightly noted as the um, empirical sort of evidence of the heterogeneity in the makeup of the political preferences, if you will, of the civil servants. I think it's also important to just observe that um, there's, regardless of the empirical reality, there's also the perception, I think, more um, from you know, from 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 the right, that you know that 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 the bureaucrats are more liberal leaning, and therefore you've seen, just as Chris has been alluding to, um, Republican administrations, I think, be much more. Um, Open certainly this administration much more open about the hostile their hostility to civil servants and you see that in the rhetoric of this administration I've already mentioned the deep state but also you know all of the 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 efforts that have been made to to um, cut cut back on their their protections um, and then I think on top of that there's also this um, important kind of valence of um, Sort of the ideal, the unitary executive, and the 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 ways in which uh, bureaucratic resistance threatens that ideal, and you know, you know, the unitary executive, I think, has been um, an idea that has been, you know, has has, has found more sympathizers um, to the right um, of the spectrum than than the left. Um, uh, although, you know, there there's certainly many subtleties to it, and you know, some some of the left also uh, subscribe to that that view. Um, but I think a uh, consequence of the unitary executive view is of indeed this idea that you know unelected functionaries um, should not be challenging the the directives of duly elected um, officials and um, while personally agreeing with that view I, I do think that that debate should be leavened again against you know all the practical realities of the bureaucratic state of the kind that we discussed earlier about you know again resource constraints and imperfect information and so on so that we have a much more sophisticated notion of these intra-executive branch dynamics can I can I just kind of build on that a little bit or maybe not build or maybe take it in a different direction a little bit too is that I, I, I you know so one you could just say that the rise of this Deep state rhetoric is somewhat unique uh, to this particular administration. I, I think it's also fueled in part by congressional inaction. Uh, I think that we're seeing with Congress not passing laws, not revisiting agency re- organic statutes, oftentimes not even doing the oversight they need to before they reappropriate. Um, it, it really is placing more and more power uh, to actually do to implement the law in in, in the federal agencies and. 
and, and so there is at least I think on the intellectual right uh, this worry of you know we're getting further further and further away from you know policy making major decisions being made by uh, democratically elected you know political, more politically accountable actors uh, and I think if that keeps on going. <laughs> Um, I, I don't think this is just going to be unique to the Trump administration. I think the next Republican administration is going to feel this even more strongly uh, because agencies are able to lock in some policy preferences of the past and advance those in ways that aren't really checked by Democratic branch. So looking to Congress, I, this actually gets us to our last question, which is, it's 2019. How does bureaucratic resistance change in divided government? Instead of going to inspector generals, uh, can uh, bureaucrats who wish to resist go to congressional committees? And, and what do we think about that? those kind of avenues? Um, first of all, what avenues are open? And then, then what, do we, what do we think about those avenues in a normative sense? Yeah, I think, you know, if I had to make a prediction, I would predict that there would indeed be less bureaucratic resistance in times of divided government rather than uh, unified government. I do think that, you know, bureaucrats um, in times of unified government um, potentially see themselves as more of a check out of necessity. Uh, whereas in divided government, you know, just as you're you're suggesting, there are more of these sanctioned avenues um, and uh, an outlet, if you will, for um, those in power here um, uh, uh, you know, to the extent that the that the um, Democrats are pr um, providing a check, and this is much more of the separation of parties, not powers point. Um, then, indeed, you know, because those avenues are open, and now that because these committees will have more of these oversight mechanisms, that you will see civil servants um, feeling like they can get that information out into the public, ring the fire alarms um, directly to Congress rather than having to do so themselves. And I think normatively, um, I think that's all to the better because as a general matter, again, I don't think bureaucratic resistance is something to be celebrated. I think it's something that when we see that we should be concerned, not only because of the resistance itself, but also because of what it could be suggesting is happening within the administration. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, it's this is the way it's supposed to work, right? Even Even when it's not divided government, I would hope that Congress is jealous of its own power and would try to make sure that, you know, that the will of the people, the policy preferences of, of the people are being represented at the agencies. And so when it's in divided government, as you know, as Jennifer was saying, that's, I, I hope that's what we see. I hope that the Democrats in the House focus on some of these really important issues and maybe not get as, you know, spend as much time on it, you know, I mean, because I mean, there's also the politics involved there too, right? Uh, but I do, I really do hope that they'll take that oversight seriously and really allow for that safety valve to, to be released. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. This episode was produced by Chris Walling. Follow us on Twitter at UshyLrev. Articles from the Law Review are available on the website at lawreview.uchicago.edu. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud.com slash UshyLrev. And visit our blog at lawreviewblog.uchicago.edu. Thanks for listening.